After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. Very quickly, some people believe Shamir might be an early form of the name Samaria. And this might be one of the earliest views we see of the city of Samaria, although that was not formally established until Omri, who came much later. Verse 3, and after him arose, you'd pronounce this, Yair, the Gileadite who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havot Yair, which means the villages of Yair, which are in the land of Gilead. And Yair died and was buried in Kamon. So we've got two minor judges here. The book of Judges has several major judges, as they called, like Samson, like well, Jephthah, we're going to talk about tonight, like Othniel and others. But then you've got others like Shamgar, Tola, and Jair, who are minor judges. We only have a little bit about them. First of all, we see Tola, who is of the tribe of Issachar. It seems just about every tribe is represented in the book of Judges, which is cool. And it says that he saved Israel after this. You remember the story of Abimelech. He's not really one of the judges. He, he is the catastrophe that happens in the middle of the book where he slaughters his own family. He attempts to establish uh, himself as king of Israel by force. And he is put down. It's a, it's a miserable story that we went through. And in that power vacuum that's left after that, it would seem that Tola is the man who steps in and establishes peace again for 23 years. So that's good. This is an improvement from where things were. And then next you have this guy, Jair, who is from Gilead. Remember, Gilead is a city, but it's also the common name for the region of the eastern side of the Jordan River. So you think of Israel, which is bordering the Mediterranean Sea. Across the Jordan, the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and half of Manasseh stayed, if you recall, and extended the borders. That region is called Gilead, and it's going to feature in the story tonight. So this guy, Jair, judged 22 years You'll notice he is compared to Gideon. Remember Gideon had 70 sons? Doesn't mention how many wives he had. I'm certain it was more than one to produce 70 sons. But this guy had 30, and they all rode on donkeys. And you might say, well, who cares if they rode on donkeys? This is a, a picture of a princely thing. It's a, it's a royal or rich way of parading yourself, that every one of them has got their own donkey that they ride around on, and they've all got their own, silly, oh, their own city that they're in charge of. So it's kind of this pseudo-royalty or nobility that's coming in again. It's it's another reminder here of the declining quality of the leaders in the book of Judges. We start out with guys like Othniel and Ehud, who had nothing bad said about them, going down through guys like Barak, who was kind of a coward, to Gideon, who was really a coward and then took a lot of power to himself. And, and now you get to guys like Jair, that we are getting lesser men and worse outcomes as time goes on. I do want to mention, though, that not all of these guys were wicked men. For example, Gideon did some pretty messed up things. So did guys like Ehud. So did the guy we're going to read about tonight, Jephthah. It's not so much that they are held up as wicked, evil men. These were heroes of Israel. But what you can see through these men is that they are reflecting the nation's failures, that they are, in a sense, representing the problems that the nation itself was having. And I reminded you at the beginning of this book, not everything in the book of Judges is something you're supposed to be imitating. 
That sounds very obvious, right? Not everything in the Bible is something that you're supposed to do. There is such a thing as a bad example in the Bible. Some people like to hold that up. Did you know that in the Bible, one guy killed 70 of his brothers? Yeah, he's the bad guy in the story, right? You're not supposed to do all that. And I would say there's nobody in the book of Judges who exemplifies the need for this principle more than the guy we're going to talk about next, who is Jephthah. Just because he did it does not mean that the Bible approves of it. And what we have tonight, especially into chapter 11, is the closest thing to like a Greek tragedy here or like a Shakespearean tragedy. We've got this guy that you really sympathize with and who does great things, yet he's got this flaw that is going to cause him to ruin everything. And eventually he's going to lose everything. And as we're going to go through this, we're going to see it also was an unnecessary tragedy that did not have to happen. Jephthah is a very fascinating character to study, I think. So let's move on past these minor judges and get into his story a little bit. Verse 6. The people of Israel, again, might want to underline that, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. We're going to deal with the Ammonites this week. Next week, we're going to start talking about Samson, who fought the Philistines. So it could be that both of these stories are happening at the same time, but perhaps not. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Verse 10, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, as we've said, the book of Judges is a cycle. It's a downward spiral. It's, it's over and over again. The people sinned against the Lord, despite the fact he had delivered them in the past. And it actually says the Lord sold them, very powerful figure of speech here, into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Now, this is part of the covenant, do you remember? The Lord said, I will give you this land, and if you serve me, I'll bless you. And if you reject me, then I will reject you. Part of that process also is the deliverance, which we're going to read about tonight. Now, for 18 years, Ammon, which was a country to the east of Israel and to the east of Gilead as well, they oppressed the nation. 
The tipping point comes, though, as you can see here, is for 18 years, they're harassing the tribes on the eastern side. It's called the Transjordan. means cross the Jordan. They're harassing them for 18 years. Now they're starting to make incursions into the mainland, the main territory of Israel, Judah in the south, Benjamin in the center, and Ephraim into the north. So now it's not just a, a frontier problem. Now it's everybody's problem. And they come to the Lord and they say, God, please help us. And God rejects their pleas. He sends them back. He says, you've been serving other gods who I had delivered you from. I say, you, you used to be oppressed by the Egyptians and oppressed by the Amorites and oppressed by the Ammonites and the, and the you know, Sidonians, and you're serving their gods. So go pray to them to help you. Can God do that? He certainly can. He's God. God is not mocked. God is a person. He's not a program where you put in the right information and you get out what you want. Because I defeated these gods and defeated these nations for you. And I showed love to you. And you've rejected me. And they said, no, no, please, Lord, you've got to help us. And to their credit, they put away in verse 16 their foreign gods. And they begin to serve Jehovah, the Lord. And then this really interesting phrase at the end of verse 16. It says, he became impatient over the misery of Israel. I like the way the ESV translates this. Some of the others have something like, God became grieved over the misery of Israel, or he became hurt over what he saw. That is how it should be read, but there's actually perhaps a double meaning in the way this is written. The word for impatient is the Hebrew word katsar, and it literally means to cut short. And most of the time, it's translated impatient or annoyed, to kind of be short with somebody. We still say that, right? That he was annoyed by their misery. That word is amal, and it can also be translated trouble or mischief. So, yes, there's probably a double meaning here that God was, was grieved over the fact that his people were hurt, but there's also another way to read this is like God had just about had enough of them. He was annoyed over their mischief. They were, they were trying his patience by doing this over and over again. Why is that? Why does it seem that God is not especially impressed? by their repentance this time. Well, our title tonight is Mercenary Religion, and that's what we're going to see is happening here. They're serving the Lord for mercenary reasons. They figure we've been serving the gods of the Ammonites. Now the Ammonites are attacking us. Okay, so these gods aren't working. <laughs> Let's go back to this God, and he'll get rid of the Ammonites. And God goes, I've done this many times, and you keep on rejecting me and going back to serve these other gods. Why should I do this for you? They were hiring God, in a sense, by these actions. They were trying to pay God off, to bribe him, to drive out their enemies. And that is how most people, I would say, think about their religion, especially those who are not believers. That is, as you cutting a deal with God. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. You're more powerful than me. I'll, I'll sacrifice a hundred bulls to you. Or I'll go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. Or I'll stop smoking or whatever. You're kind of making a deal with the Lord. But the thing is, that breaks God's heart. Did you know that? That it breaks God's heart when we try to deal with him like that? The Lord God is, is unique because he does not desire us just to serve him. The first and greatest commandment of Scripture, according to Jesus, is to love the Lord your God. To love the Lord. Not just to serve Him, but to love Him. Now you might say, well, that just kind of seems like 
like oppressive, that you, you can't just do what he says. We've got to love him too. That's what dictators do. No, it's not. It's what fathers do. Isn't that true? You want your kids to do what you say because you're dad and you know best. But you don't just want them to do that for that reason. Every father desires the love of his children. And God is our father. He's called our father God. And it breaks our father's heart when his children only seek his presence for something they can get out of it. Those of you with teenagers, doesn't it kind of tick you off, annoy you with their mischief when your children no longer want to be with you just to be with you, but because they want to borrow the car for the weekend? A lot of nodding heads here. I can see I've, uh, I've struck a nerve. This is, I was a youth pastor. I know what's up, right? One's like, hey, dad, how are you? And you go, what do you want? Why do I got to want something to love my dad? You don't have to, but you do, don't you? And it's like, it's kind of a funny, sarcastic game. And most of us kind of grow out of that, right? But the delight that comes is when those children finally grow out of that. And now you start to, be ha to have a different kind of relationship with them where it's no longer transactional, but it's real. It's a real relationship. And don't you know that that's what God wants with you too? There's a great little story in the book of Zechariah where the children of Israel have been exiled to the land of Babylon. They're brought back to the land of Judah and they come to the prophet Zechariah and they ask him a question. They say, hey, we instituted this holiday when we were in Babylon for 70 years where we would weep and we would mourn over the fact that Jerusalem had been destroyed. Well, now we're back in Jerusalem. Should we still keep that holiday? Should we still keep that fast? Listen to what the Lord says. In Zechariah 7, verses 5 through 6, the Lord said to Zechariah, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves. The prophet deliberately does not answer their question. Should we keep this holiday? The Lord goes, I have a question for you. Who's this holiday for? Are you doing it because you're lamenting your nation? Or are you lamenting the fact that you broke the covenant with the Lord your God? Are you lamenting the fact that you rejected me or that you lost your country? Because really what he amounts to is, I don't really care what you do, but I want your heart. I want your heart. I've, I've known many married couples that will fight with one another where one of them will say, I want you to love me. And another one says, why do you care what I feel? As long as I'm not going, I'm not cheating on you. I'm not, not stepping out. So what difference does it make? It's because we want the heart of the person. Isn't that true? That's how the Lord feels towards us. The Christian religion is not a matter of hiring God with your prayers and your service, but it's of true love, not romantic love. Don't get that messed up. The love between a father and a child or, or even bigger between a God and those that he has created. God is love, and he desires the love of his people. So when the Ammonites invade the nation, and they say, we're coming back to the Lord, God goes, I know what this is about. You're in trouble, and you want me to bail you out. And the second I bail you out, you're going to be right back to where you were. Dare I say that they hurt God's feelings? Have we ever done that? I think I have before. So when this battle comes in Mizpah, they seek God's help, and God is going to help them. He does love them very dearly. <laughs> it's really easy for somebody else to say, you should just let your kid just ruin their life and then that'll teach them. It's like, oh, that's easy for you to say. It's not your kid. God should have just let them be destroyed. God goes, that's easy for you to say. Those are my kids. 
He's going to help them. But what we're going to see, when they get to Mizpah, they, they start to muster for the battle. They say, who's going to lead us? And instead of the usual God raised it up a deliverer, they're going to do for somebody else exactly what they did for God. They're going to try to hire or bribe somebody. So chapter 11 now, verses 1 through 11. Now, Jephthah is how you would say this, but we'll call him Jephthah. Call him Jeff if you like. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Some people speculate that that's a, a term to say he was a true son of the land of Gilead. Probably not. It probably was his father's name. Okay? And Gilead's wife, see, there you go, also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, presumably when his father died, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov, the word means good. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. My father said that about the few of the fellows that collected around me when I was growing up, that they are worthless fellows. <laughs> Verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me? And drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? You can see how his attitude is very similar to the Lord's here, isn't it? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. That word for head is rosh. It means chief or ruler. Jephthah said in verse 9 to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So we meet this guy, Jephthah, from the land of Gilead. And the first thing it says is he's a mighty warrior. Second thing it says is he was the son of a prostitute. What seems to have happened is Gilead, this man, had had sexual relations with a prostitute, which had produced this child, Jephthah. Later on, this guy gets married and begins to have legitimate children. So that when Gilead grows old and perhaps dies, Jephthah is driven out because technically he would have been the oldest, although he was not a legitimate son. And they were not about to let this mighty warrior be one to share in their inheritance. And so they drove him out. And Jephthah gathers worthless men around him. The picture you're getting here is that Jephthah is basically living like an outlaw. He's got a gang. He's got a posse that follows him. He's become a raider. And he's living in a land called Tov, which is actually to the northeast of a city called Ramoth-Gilead, which was the famous border between Israel and Syria that was often disputed. So he was not even living in the boundaries of Israel and was making trouble in the land of Syria with his worthless fellows. Now, when Israel needs a leader, they go to Jephthah. And when they talk to him, he's understandably kind of bitter with these people. Oh, now you want me home. Now you want me back. All of a sudden, I'm useful to you. You drove me out. You said you didn't want anything to do with me. Now, all of a sudden, you expect me to come back and fight and die for you? And they say, we'll make you Rosh. We'll make you chief. We'll make you the leader. And he says, all right, I'll do it. So Israel... 
not only treats God like a mercenary, somebody they can hire, they're treating each other that way too. They're treating Jephthah like they're treating God. We need you now. We didn't want you before because you were messing up the way we were living. But now that we're in trouble, we need you back. Many people accuse Christians of treating God that way, and that's why they don't want to be Christians. Well, can I tell you, that's not how we're supposed to do it. The Bible holds that up as a bad example, right? Jephthah had committed no crime. He didn't do it. We have a bad habit of doing that as people. That the, the, the child that comes perhaps as a result of sin, we want to blame the kid like they did something. It's ridiculous. We're supposed to forgive each other anyway. But also, Jephthah wasn't the one that had done this. He was obviously cared for by his father, the fact that he needed to be driven out by his brothers later. But what he's taught through this process, Jephthah learns the lesson that his value only comes through what he can contribute. You yourself, we don't want you. But as soon as you become useful, we want you back. You know, the greatest commandment Jesus told us in Matthew 22 is to love the Lord. But he said the second one is like it. And what did he tell us? Love your neighbor as yourself. We're not to transact one another as Christians, as people. That's not how you treat people. Is are you useful to me? Then I'll have you. If you're no longer useful, then I'll pass you off. If I need you, then I'll, I'll pay you. I'll bribe you. You ever been, been insulted by somebody that offered to pay you for something that you would do willingly? Yeah. It doesn't feel very good, does it? Like, why would you offer me money? I'll just do it for you. Now, usually we're, you're, that's something like paying the bill at the restaurant, but this is something a little more serious, isn't it? We're supposed to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. Much as we talk about self-love, which is so cringy and not at all biblical. But all right, if you're going to be real into self-love, Bible tells us you're supposed to love everybody else just as much. In fact, more so. Paul says to prefer one another. Love sees each person as somebody who had been handcrafted by God. And not only that, somebody who is worth the blood of Jesus to redeem. Everybody you meet, Jesus thought was worth dying for. That ought to affect the way you view people. That's why when Christians say things like every life matters, we mean it. Oh, you don't care about life. You just want the babies to be born. That's not true. That child that might have been aborted is somebody that Jesus died for. So is the mother. So is the father. Worth it. Let me read you from Colossians chapter 3. It's such a great section. I was only going to read one phrase from this, but as I read the whole thing, I'm like, i got to do all of it. Look what Paul said in Colossians 3. Here, meaning in the church, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then. So we believe that, right? That Jesus died for everybody, and it doesn't matter if you're Chinese or Mexican or American or something else. Jesus died for you. doesn't matter your social status, etc. Therefore, Paul says, put on then, using the metaphor of a garment now, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. My translation, putting up with one another. Well, I don't like them. Put up with them. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You know, times ebb and flow, and virtues come in and out of style depending on the season you're living in. You know, back in the day, it was everything was, hey, peace, love, man. Well, and that's not so much the case today. You know, everybody's very hostile towards each other all the time. We're even hostile towards each other for being hostile. Isn't that funny how that works, that repetitive cycle, right? Let's never forget that Christians are to be people of love, grace, and kindness. Gentle people. We're supposed to be gentle in the church. For the meek shall inherit the earth. How you treat somebody, especially how you treat them in the name of Jesus, shapes how they're going to treat other people and how they're going to think about God. When you come and you've got that title of Christian over your life, the way you treat somebody is how they're going to think Jesus would treat them. That's not fair. That's the way it is. Jephthah was cast aside until he was needed. And that's going to shape how he leads the people of Israel. So you start out, we're kind of on Jephthah's team here. It's not fair that he was cast out the way he was. He's out there living like a real man, making his own way. He kind of reminds us of David, doesn't he? Because he's out in the wilderness. He's got this, his band of mighty men and he's raiding against the enemies of Israel and he steps in to help when the time comes but it's not going to end well for Jephthah. Verse 12, read this section here. These are the negotiations. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Nice thing to say after 18 years of attacks, isn't it? Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land, which is directly to the south of Israel. But the king of Edom would not listen. So they sent also to the king of Moab, who was north of Edom. But he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then, verse 18, they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. The Amorite country was north of Moab and the Ammonites would have been east of the Amorites. Point is, we didn't even go through your land. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Arawer and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? Point is, if it's such a big deal to you, why did you wait 300 years? 
I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. The king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. And that's, I guess, to be expected. He's spoiling for a fight, and this is kind of a formality here. But Jephthah represents Israel, challenges the Ammonites for invading Gilead and invading Israel, and Ammon claimed that Israel had stolen their land. Boy, nothing changes much, does it? Just keeps on going. By the way, the capital of Ammon was a city called Rabbah, which is today the capital of Jordan, the kingdom of Jordan. It's not called Rabbah anymore. So this is kind of the land we're talking about here. Now, Ammon says, you stole the land, but Jephthah gives him a little history lesson, which if you want to go back to Numbers chapter 21, you can read the story. It happened exactly the way Jephthah said. Why go through the big long list? Well, first of all, because boundary disputes matter in the land of Israel, as we learn even to this day. But also he's like, uh, I know what happened. You can't just say that we stole it. You, this is the history. We've got it written down. It's been 300 years. He makes the point, we respected our family's land. Moab and Ammon were descended from the two sons of Lot, Moab and Ben-Ami. Ben-Ami was the father of the Ammonites. He was the son of Lot by his daughter. Yucky story from Genesis 19. Point is, they were ancestrally related, though. And so he says, we've always respected our family's land, and you didn't even come into this story back in the day. And we've been here for 300 years, which that's one of the clearest markers we have about when this is happening in the land of Israel. The Exodus happened around 1440 BC. You account for 40 plus years uh, to get to the end of the life of Moses, plus a few years through the conquest of Joshua. Now 300 years that they've been living there. We're looking at circa 1100 BC right now. So in case you're interested in the timeline, we kind of know where we are. Now, Jephthah is absolutely in the right here, but there's going to be a fight anyway, because it's really not about the history here. It's about the fact that we want your land and we think we can take it. The Lord had actually told Israel in Deuteronomy 2.19, he said, when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. So not only had they not harassed Ammon in the past, it was part of their religion that they weren't allowed to harass Ammon. God raises up and tears down nations, Jephthah says. This isn't up to us. It's up to our God. And no one can manipulate God to get their own way. It's good that he's saying this now, but he's really not going to learn this lesson, unfortunately. You love his faith here. You love him standing on the word of God here and speaking boldly. He's a great man. But... He's doomed, unfortunately. Verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And you almost want to say, don't do it, Jephthah. And said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Minit, twenty cities, and as far as Ebel Karamim with a great, bl great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. 
So we see Jephthah is empowered by the Holy Spirit for this battle. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, Jephthah is going to be mentioned as one of the great examples of faith in the Old Testament. And he is that. But he makes a very, very foolish vow here, and we're going to see how it pays off. You probably know the story. The battle is won, though. But we do need to recognize he didn't win this battle because of the vow he made. He won the battle because he had faith in the mercy and the promises of Almighty God. He had faith that the Word of God said that this is our land and we've not done anything wrong and that our God is merciful and kind and will fight for us. He believed that and yet he added something else on top of that. This is mercenary religion. When you feel the need to sweeten the deal with God. All right, I know that you answer all of our prayers, Lord, but uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer you this and then you give me that. We think that kind of like adds to the, to the deal here. And then when God delivers us, we say, oh, good thing I promised God that or it never would have happened. Not realizing that God acts out of grace and love, not for mercenary gain. How do I know that? Because the Bible is replete with God telling us, I don't need your stuff. I want your heart. I want to help you because I love you. I don't want to do this because I'm going to get a good rate of return on my investment. Look what David said in Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17, to God. He said, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And David had messed up big time. He had not only slept with his best friend's wife, he had had his friend killed so that he could have his wife. And his, there's really no offering I can bring. Oh, I'll just offer a few, few lambs and a few goats and things will be ship shape. That's not how the Bible does things. I, I know there's nothing I can do to fix this. But here's what I do know about you, God that you will not turn away somebody with a broken heart. When I come to you, and I, and I mean sincerely, not just like, oh, uh, you know, sorry, Lord, we're good now, right? You have to forgive me. Your Bible said it. Huh? No. When you're broken before God, David says, you're not going to turn that away. That's the sacrifice you want. The point of the sacrifice was to teach you that. And as the Lord often said in the, in the prophets, he's like, would you just stop your sacrifices? You're not getting it. Which means that God is willing to accept your prayers and your cries because he loves you, not because of what you can do for God. Can you accept the fact that God has already accepted you? Sometimes that's the hard part. It's like we know the theology and we might even be able to sit across from somebody and tell them boldly and strongly, God loves you and he died for you and he doesn't want, to want anything from you. And yet we get by ourselves and we think that somehow it doesn't apply to me. You don't know what I've done. <laughs> beloved John said let us love one another for love is from God and everyone that loves is born of God he who does not love does not know God for God is love God is love that's a stative sentence God is love he knows you and sent his son Jesus to die you anyway die for you anyway. He redeemed you without obligation. Do you remember when God brought the children of Israel out of the promised land and, or out of Egypt and brought them to Sinai? He said, I brought you out of Egypt. Now will you be my people? He saved them first. 
And then he offered the chance to be his people. That's what God did for us. He sent his son first and then offered us to be his people. The actions that you take are to be in full faith in God's love and his promises, not because of your works. It still sinks in after all this time that I've got to earn my way with God. I've got to cut a deal with God to make this happen. That's superstition. That's paganism. That's how the ancient Greeks and Romans and Norse and Hindus thought. That's how the Native Americans thought and the Ammonites thought. And every culture thought, I've got to do something for God so that maybe he'll do something for me. That's not how the true and living God does things. He loves you, and that's why he does things. He says, I want your heart. Even if you've committed the worst sin you could possibly think of, if that has brought you to a place of brokenness and willingness to change, God says, good, you're forgiven. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's not just a slogan, guys. He loves you. He loves you. Jephthah didn't understand this. He had been cast off. Maybe, maybe he still remembered that, that they only want me here as long as I'm useful. Maybe that's the way God is too. It's a shame. Verse 34, he made a vow. What did he say? First thing comes out of my house, get sacrificed to the Lord. Then Jephthah came home to his house at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. First one out of the doors, when he gets back to Mizpah, was Jephthah's sweet young daughter to welcome him home. You can just picture her saying, I want to be out first. I want daddy to see me. He's home. He's okay. Oh, I've been so worried. He's home. I want to go see him. And just picture the, the wail that would come out of the mouth of Jephthah as he sees her there. His despair and his grief. And, and you read this and it's, it's, it's not as harsh as it sounds and when you read it stilted kind of like we do. He's not blaming her as much as lamenting what's happened. But he's insistent upon keeping his vow and he thinks he has no choice. But the real tragedy to me is not the fact that he does this, but that she's so accepting of it. She's deceived too. She thinks dad promised to God that he's got to sacrifice something and it was me. That's what's got to happen. The only thing she wants is a chance to mourn over her virginity. And that sounds so weird for us, but we are a very strange and unique culture where we do not see the inability to pass on your family line as a negative thing. 
You see that it's just one choice to be made among many in life. And that's, that's, that's fine. But in most cases, and I think even among us as well, we see that as something, especially for a, a young girl like this, to not to have the chance to pass on her family name. We're, we're very selfish in how we think about this. All, all the girls did was have babies for the family. No, they saw that as an act of, of, of contributing, that I'm part of this. I'm contributing to this. And so for her, the shame on her was I didn't even get to... I, it was on me to pass on my dad's name. Because remember, if you didn't have a son, the firstborn child of your, your daughter would take on your family name. And now Jephthah's line is going to end. That would have been a reproach upon her as well. A life lost, no chance to keep going. But after two months is as he did unto her according to his vow. And guys, I know we try to wriggle out of this one. I don't think the text will allow us to say anything other than the fact that Jephthah sacrificed his daughter to the Lord. This was human sacrifice. Now we might say, well, uh, it seems though that he did according to his vow. So she was a perpetual virgin forever. Well, it's not what it says, you guys. Goes, well, why didn't God stop it? They haven't been listening to God this whole time. Not everything in the book of Judges is something for you to imitate. This is supposed to be a bad example. But let's break this down here. Right? This is supposed to be the horrors of life uh, at this time. Four points I want to make related to this real quick. And I don't know if I have time to read all these verses. I may just summarize a few, but... Number one, to be clear, human sacrifice was ab absolutely forbidden in the Bible. This is not okay. It was never okay. Deuteronomy 18 said, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, for whoever does these things as an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Human sacrifice was very common in pagan cultures. They did it in India. They did it in Ammon, which their, their top god was Molech, so you know they, they did this. They did this in Greece, and they did this in Rome. They did this in the Norse cultures. They did this in the Native American cultures. They did this in the African cultures. Have you ever heard the, the musical, not the musical, the ballet, The Rite of Spring? Have you ever watched uh, Fantasia? It's one of the musical pieces they use. That's supposed to be an homage to the pagan days of Russia, and it's all about a human sacrifice of a young girl. So... God was unique in this. You are not to kill your kids. Number one. Number two, Jephthah should never have made such a foolish vow in the first place. Okay? This is not something that he did that was, oh, how wonderful. But no, 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 no. Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon said, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It's not so much about silent meditation. Solomon's point in that passage is, when you come to God, don't make a bunch of promises. Shut up and listen to the Lord. That's much better than going in and promising all this stuff to God because he'll say later, it's better to not vow than to vow and not pay it. So he should have listened to this, this admonition in the first place. Number three, the Bible does say that a man was required to keep the vow he had made to the Lord. Numbers 30 says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. The only exception was a woman could be excused from a vow to the Lord by either her husband or her father, depending on who was the authority figure in her life at the time. So he is half right in saying, I've made a vow to the Lord and I cannot break it. But the fourth principle here is that 
It's a bigger deal to sacrifice your daughter than to break a vow you made to God in your stupidity. Amen. That's, that's the obvious lesson here. Some people try to sound real spiritual. Well, you said it, you have to do it. Uh, no. What did Samuel say to Saul? Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You think God's going to hold it against him? The point you're supposed to get from this is that they were acting just like the Ammonites that they had just defeated in battle. The Ammonites were notorious for their god Molech where they would sacrifice their babies. And now they've just defeated them in battle and he is going to do to his daughter what they were doing. You're supposed to be grieved and shocked and appalled. If you're reading this and you're saying, I can't believe this is in the Bible, good. That's how you're supposed to feel. That's why it's there. The larger problem is that Jephthah had a mercenary religion with God. He believed that God was the kind of God who brokered transactions, who cut deals with people. When you believe that God requires us to bargain with him, to earn his favor, then the next thing that happens is God's commandments of righteousness and mercy and love start to be left to the side because it's no longer about doing the right thing. It's about getting what you want out of God. We become trapped. We lose everything. Jephthah had a misunderstanding of who God was and it cost him everything. How many people are living today devastated by the constant threat that maybe I haven't done enough to make God happy? Live their whole life thinking, what do I have to do in order to keep God happy with me? It breaks my heart how many people that I come across who really, with all the kindness in my heart, should know better. But that's not how God does things. God doesn't want you to sacrifice your kid. God offered his son for you. God doesn't need you to give up a bunch of stuff and, and do all the right works and get on your knees a hundred times. God's like, I've already taken care of this. And in fact, there are many that are violent and vicious opponents of the church or of religion or of Christianity, and they're reacting to a misunderstanding of who God is. What kind of God would make his people do that? You don't understand. God did everything for us. I was raised in the church, and the things they asked me to do were ridiculous. And sometimes I listen to the story, I go, well, yeah, I think that's ridiculous too. You know, in the Bible, that there's human sacrifice? No, there's not supposed to be. They were wrong to do that. Sometimes you feel sympathetic with those that walk away from the Lord, in a sense, because they have never experienced true Christianity in the first place. They were living under this graceless, oppressive religion when true Christianity is life and liberty. Jephthah and all of Israel. Notice nobody tried to stop him. They all thought that this was the right thing to do. They had a false understanding of God that resulted in a false religion. And we get into chapter 12. His story's not over yet. The men of Ephraim were called the arms. Men of Ephraim. So this is Israelites now. And they crossed to Zaphon and they said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites that did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand. And I crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? 
Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they had said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. He said, You better run, boy, because we're coming for you. But the Gileadites captured, verse 5, the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And when they said, No, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered them at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. So this happened with Gideon too. Do you remember? Where Gideon won his battle and then Ephraim showed up and they said, hey, why did you call us to fight? And he said, oh, hey, you guys got the princes. You got the, you're so much stronger than me. I'm like, okay, I guess you're right. We are stronger than you. <laughs> Jephthah's not like that. Jephthah is not timid, scared, putting out a fleece Gideon. He's a mighty warrior who is able to keep control of a group of worthless men. Kind of the guy, as horrifying as it is, has enough strength of fortitude of personality to sacrifice his own daughter. You're not intimidating this guy. And so what does this lead to? It leads to civil war. Ephraim was the dominant tribe. They were the largest tribe. They were the most powerful. And they were probably threatened by this guy. There's now a charismatic warrior on the other side of the river that just drove out the Ammonites. We are the ones getting attacked by them. We better go put a stop to this right now. They were trying to bully him. But he was not timid. He defied their threats and he won the battle. And he's got this story where to try to keep them from escaping. So they, they blocked the river. Remember that Gilead is on the eastern side of the river. They're trying to get back to Ephraim on the western side. So they hold the fords. And then when they try to cross, they say, are you from Ephraim? No, no, of course not. And they, they have this little test. It says Shibboleth, which means corn cob. <laughs> and the Ephraimites, whatever the deal was with the various accents, they couldn't make that SH sound. Shibboleth. Maybe they had a, a lisp. Maybe that was part of the way they spoke. Uh, similar to how in Spain, they very often were pronounced the S sound with a, a TH, as opposed to Latin American Spanish. But it was a very easy way to tell where they were from. 42,000 Ephraimites were massacred here. Can you see how Israel is deteriorating? Now they just want a mighty victory in the name of the Lord. And Jephthah is largely, generally, a positive figure. But the whole country's fallen to pieces. Ephraim, who was the preeminent tribe at this time, the tribe of Joshua, remember, is proving to be a very poor leader of the nation. And that's actually part of what the story's trying to set up. Jephthah judges Israel for six years, but it's really hard to, hard to feel too much sympathy for him, isn't it? We cannot but lament that his rule was violence and death. Can you see how a person's view of a loveless God leads them to be a loveless person? Psalm 135, verse 18, talking about idols here. It says, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. It is a biblical principle that you become like what you worship. And I can probably add to that a little bit and say, very often we seek out gods to worship that are like us. Yeah. I will interpret the Bible in such a way that God is just like me, ignoring all the parts that I don't like and that might correct me. You become like what you worship. So if you believe in a God of transaction rather than a God of grace, you're going to be transactional with people. On the job, you're not going to treat people with kindness. You're going to treat them like another commodity to be used in your relationships. 
That's not going to be a woman for you to love. She's going to be a sexual object. That's not going to be a man for you to respect. It's going to be a meal ticket. Be that way in church too. We don't treat people with love and kindness. We're trying to sniff out what they're doing wrong so that we can establish moral superiority over them. You become like what you worship. And if you serve a harsh, cold, indifferent God, you're going to be harsh, cold, and indifferent with people. So what you can do is you can examine your actions and determine what you really think about God. It's always a joke for me. There was a pastor in Lynchburg, Virginia, who was on the radio. And we used to laugh about this because that's Christmas time. We've all seen that, the movie. My dad used to call this guy the angry elf on the, on the radio because he was the most angry teacher you've ever heard in your life. But what was funny about it is he would always try to be like John, the apostle, and say, beloved. So he'd like, yell and scream. You've got to learn this, beloved. <laughs> but I don't know if that really fits there, pal. So it's like he was, he was talking about a God of love, but it's like, what is your view of God really? If you, if you are comfortable representing God that way, what does that say about how you think about God? Examine yourself. Examine your actions. And ask yourself, what kind of God am I truly worshiping tonight? We'll finish the chapter now. After him, after Jephthah, Ibzan of Bethlehem, pause, probably a different Bethlehem than the one we're used to. There were two different cities. There are actually probably more than two, but probably in the north, not the south. Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. How many wives? Probably more than one. And he gave them in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. <clears throat> so three more minor judges here, Ibzan, Elan, and Abdon. They're all from all over Israel. One's from Zebulun. Uh, one is from the land of Ephraim, and the other one we think is probably from farther up in the north as well. But once again, you've got two of them, Ibzan and Abdon, with very round-numbered children here, multiple sons, acting like nobility in the land of Israel. They're acting like Gideon. They're imitating the worst parts of one of Israel's greatest heroes. What do we get from this? You know, you kind of got a section like this before story of Jephthah, and then after. What's the point? They haven't learned anything. They're going to repeat these mistakes. And I'll say that we too, as Christians, will repeat mistakes if we are not corrected. If you conceive of God as a mercenary, somebody who only responds to bribes, then we're going to treat other people as commodities too. And what that will do is you will treat people the way you think God treats you, and then that person will have that same idea about God because they learned it from you, and then they're going to do the same thing. And the cycle will continue on and on and on. Maybe you here tonight, like Jephthah, were cast off by somebody who should have loved you. Maybe you were in the wrong. Maybe there was legitimate sin involved. But rather than somebody in God's house or in your house, showing you the forgiveness and the kindness that Jesus commanded, they cast you off. And even though you know in your head that it wasn't God that did that, it was these people, you can't shake that attitude in your heart that maybe that's how God is too. 
I'm here to tell you that's not how God is. Those people, I don't care if they have the title of bishop, elder, pastor, mother, father, in front of their name. If they represented God that way to you, they misrepresented him. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, tells us about how God treats people. He says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. What's Paul saying? He's like, God died for ungodly people. Now, we don't even die for good people. Now, for a really good person, you might die for them. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent Jesus to die for you when you had nothing to offer him. So why do you think now that you've been redeemed by his blood that you have to offer him something now? He just wants you. He wants you just as you are. If you can accept that love from a God of grace, you'll start to realize that religion is not transactional. It's relational. It's you and him. He loves you. He did everything for you. Then you can start to love others the same way too. Because what did Jesus say? He who is forgiven much loves much. You're only forgiven a little. You think you really don't have that much to take care of? That's how you're going to treat people too. Well, what's your problem? I didn't need all that forgiveness. Do you think I'm going to give that to you? But if you realize how the depths of your sin and that I could have been Jephthah in this story, but God loved me and forgave me anyway, then when somebody comes up to you and they say things like, don't you know what I've done? I, I, how much money I stole from my company? Don't you know what I've been hiding in my closet in my house? Don't you know that I had an abortion? You'll say, hey, God loves you with all his heart. He accepts you. He wants to bring you to the cross. Why, so he can beat you down? No, that he can see that his son was beat down on your behalf. He doesn't need you to sacrifice your kid. God sacrificed his kid. Jephthah was a tragic hero of Israel. He did so many good things. He had so much going for him. He was a hurt person who stepped up in faith anyway. And yet, because he had this view of God, it caused him to do something so tragic that it overshadows all the good that he did. But you know what's so wonderful? Even him, later on in the book of Hebrews, God holds him up as an example of faith. That's the kind of forgiveness that God offers you. And I wish he could have been there to tell Jephthah, don't you know what happened the last time somebody was about to sacrifice their child? When Abraham was on top of the mountain and was ready to strike his son down, God stopped him and said, no, I'll provide a sacrifice for myself. You don't need to do this, Jephthah. God is going to one day send his son named Jesus, who's going to die on a cross for you to cover not just all the sins that you've committed or that have been committed against you, not even the one of sacrificing your own daughter. Everything is going to be wiped clean by his blood. Friends, don't multiply your tragedies. Start believing in a God of love, not a God who is a mercenary, who accepts bribes and treats you like you're some commodity. He's a God of grace and a God of love. And if you're having trouble believing it, then I'll just say make the decision to believe it tonight. And the word of God will not disappoint you.